the Sarah Lawrence Library, I'm Tim Kale, and this is the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. For our last episode of the season, we're joined by author and professor here at Sarah Lawrence, April Mosolino, to discuss writing, teaching, life, and more. It's a truly great conversation. I know I'm vibing with a guest when questions just flow naturally out of what the guest has just said. That happened several times and it just felt so good. The entire experience made me want to take a class with April. Just so you're aware of our timeline, classes resume January 24th, 2024. So our next episode of the podcast will come out Friday, January 26th. At this time, I have absolutely no idea what that episode will be, uh, but I'm excited to discover it nonetheless. Before we start, I encourage you to give the podcast a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcast. This is your way to leave a positive mark on the show and help us continue to find our audience. You're probably hearing the 3D printer. It's really going down right now. You can connect with us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Remember to visit the library website at sarahlawrence.edu library for any of the many services we offer, including booking a consultation with one of our research librarians, booking a study room, or using our 3D printer or sewing machine. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions that you'd rather not share over social media, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. The Sarah Lawrence Student Life Preservation Project is accepting contributions. Visit slcstudentlifeproject.omica.net for more information. That URL will be in the show notes. Thank you again for joining us today. We hope this episode finds you well and that you share it with your friends and colleagues. Now let's begin. Thank you all for coming to the last installment of the Faculty Spotlight for the semester. And it's been an incredible run that we've had since we started. We have gone through all kinds of disciplines, but I love it when we land on literature because it's just near and dear to our hearts. We love talking to writers, finding out about their process. And just so you know a little bit, um, this is going to be recorded and then published as a podcast very soon. All the podcasts uh, are preserved in the archives forever, meaning literally forever. So it's just a wonderful opportunity to capture the voice and spirit of our incredible faculty at Sarah Lawrence College. So today we're going to be celebrating the work and life of April Mussolino. She has a BA from Sarah Lawrence. So we are, you are talking to one of your uh, fellow alum students right here. So um, April has taught at the 92nd Street Y, New York University, and her short story, Alcestis, I hope I pronounced that correct, Alcestis. Close enough, right, from, close enough. Appeared in the blue light corner, black women writing on passion, sex, and romantic love. Her fiction work has appeared in the anthology Mending the World with Basic Books, 110 Stories, New York writes after September 11th, NYU Press. And her first novel, Knee Deep in Wonder, won the Zora Neale Hurston Richard Wright Foundation Award, which is amazing. And her second novel, Shape of Dreams, is forthcoming. So we definitely look forward to that. We would love to have April back after that's published. That would be wonderful. So without further ado, I will hand the mic to Tim Kale, who is... Uh, the maestro for for the series, and then at the end, if there's time, I'm, there usually always is, we'll have some question and answer, and we would love it if you could ask your questions here in the, in the chair so that the mic can right be right where you are so that it gets properly recorded. So thank you, everybody, and please have some coffee and dessert as well uh, whenever you want. Thanks, everyone. Okay, uh, so just so you know, if I ever look at my watch, it's not because I'm being rude, it's just <laughs> I need to keep track of time, um, or if I look down, I'm just looking at my next question. Got you. Okay, great. So would you please state your name, your personal pronouns, and the title of your upcoming book? Okay. Um, my name is April Mussolino. I publish under my maiden name, April Reynolds. Um, she pronouns, and... 
Uh, I am, my upcoming book, my upcoming novel, Shape of Dreams is coming out with Kanaf. Um, I'm turning that in now, so with luck. Um, it will be published in 2024, fall. Nice, that's exciting. Do you still get excited when you're getting something published? Like, oh, yeah. yeah, okay. No, no, being published is a gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one, one never tires of it. So yes, it's pretty exciting. All right, awesome. So you graduated from Sarah Lawrence in 1997? Yes. Is that correct? What did you study? Well, creative writing, of course. No, uh, <laughs> uh, actually, my concentration was philosophy. Your concentration so, was philosophy. Yeah. So I did a lot of philosophy, and I did, obviously, did creative writing, and then did a lot of literature. So, What did you learn when you were studying philosophy that has stayed with you till this day? All the ideas for my novels. <laughs> really and truly, I... Um, the book that I'm working on now actually comes from Herodotus, the histories. And you know the story of Gyges? I do not. When, so the story of Gyges, Brahm, correct me when, when I stumble, um, there's this man, and he, long story short, palms a ring, and he fiddles with the ring, and he can turn it in such a way that be, he becomes invisible. And once he realizes he's invisible, he, well, does all manner of naughty things. And I just thought about that kind of scenario and sort of what it means, especially when you're living in the city, how people are like, you're invisible and everyone's anonymous and you can kind of get away with everything. So my story takes place in the 80s um, in East Harlem, in El Barrio where that sort of happens and a murder takes place. So, yes. All right, that's awesome. What did you do for fun when you were a student? <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, well, it, sounds, it seems like you did have fun. Oh, I, yes. I, no, no, <laughs> no. Uh, we, we, uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, I we we had lots of fun. We um, <laughs> next question, sure. PG version. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, so, what's the biggest change you've noticed at the college since then? And conversely, how has it stayed the same? Um, you know, I think that actually, I mean, I think some things have stayed the same. Uh, at least as a professor and not a student, I. I'm very much aware of like how little I know about my students' uh, lives. That was certainly the truth when I was here. We, I think we, as Sarah Lawrence, seem to get into more trouble than, than this lovely, lovely bunch of students. I think you guys are amazingly good, or at least much better at holding secrets than, <laughs> than, than we were. Um, but I, I think, you know, for the most part, the sort of level of the passion of the students um, here has remained the same. I have lots of students who take fairly seriously their writing and imagine what it would look like out in the world. Um, and so that, that part is, is, is true. And we're st we'll, we are still SLC pretty quirky lot. Mm -hmm. So that hasn't, the sort of contours of that quirkiness has changed over time, mm -hmm. but, the, but the quirkiness has remained the same. The quirkiness is in the core. Yes, yes, <laughs> we're quirky to the core. Yes, um, so I read your article, my father always told me Oatmeal saved his family. Uh, now I understand how, from for Bon Appetit. Oh. It's a great story. Thank you. And I was just wondering, could you explain why it's so important to your family? Uh, well, I mean, you know, I think that, and I'm sure a lot of my <clears throat> writing students feel this way as well. There's a lot about when you write um, that you take from your own life and sort of what that means. And the thing I loved best about my father is that he had sort of incredible stories like that um, where 
you know, his family was sharecropping and they basically are like stealing away in the middle of the night to get, a, get away from um, this, this sharecropper who, the farmer who is clearly going to make a mint for forever with, with my father's family. Um, and I, I like, you know, I feel like stories about our family do lots of interesting things. A, it really ties us to the specificity of history. You sort of realize like, oh, that is, as much as we are always about ourselves, being able to sort of reach out and, you know, my dad's from Arkansas, my mom's from Georgia, I'm a Texan, I'm a Southerner, um, and I'm a Southerner who has spent my entire adult life in New York. Um, and so one of the reasons why I love the stories about, that my father tells me, it sort of reminds me that I very much have Southern roots, um, which you can sometimes lose when you live in the city mm -hmm. long enough. So, uh, and I also like it because um, I think my dad did a really great job of giving me stories like that, that on the one hand can be seen in a pretty horrific mm -hmm. uh, fashion. But for my dad, it's a story of triumph. And it was a funny story, you know? Um, and so that, you know, oftentimes when we find ourselves in whatever our particular circumstances are, rather than they just necessarily be tragic, they actually can be, you know, life-affirming. Mm -hmm. They can be funny. Mm -hmm. uh, they can be thrilling. And that's just one of the many stories that my father told me about. Yeah, I was I was blown away by how the tone was just consistently positive. You know, it was just like here are these horrifying things on the outskirts of what can happen to these people. Right. But like the the familial ties are keeping them together, and there's a little bit of humor between all these characters right. as well. Well, it is affirming. I mean, he did make it. Yeah. I you know I, I am I I was born. Yeah, yeah. So I mean. Yes, it is. Um, I think, you know, when we as people or when you write your characters, uh, it's like on the one hand, um, hopefully there's conflict and hopefully, um, you know, you put them in dangerous situations. But just the very fact that he survived uh, is, is life affirming. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, okay, changing gears a little bit. Okay. So describe your teaching style, and are there any similarities between the way you write and the way you teach? Give me a next question. No, uh, no um, I, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think I teach the way I write. Okay. Um, I think they're very different. Mm -hmm. Um... I think I'm much more, I really like having a good time in class. And hopefully my students have a good time in class. And yes, we, you know, we learn tons of things. Um, and we try not to get too angry at each other. Or when we do, we hopefully quickly veer into humor. But I, but I actually think my writing is, um, Maybe it's the subject matter, maybe it's the time periods in which I write about, but I do find in my writing things that I find rather humorous, like my oatmeal story. Mm -hmm. Other people read it and they're like, that was horrific. Mm -hmm. I'm like, really? I, I thought it was, I laughed. Mm -hmm. So, um, but in class, the fact that we are having a good time, at least to me, feels much more apparent and and it's, I mean, that's what is best about teaching is that when you're onto something or when your students are onto something, there's a kind of call and response, for lack of a better phrase, um, that is, you know, writing just doesn't give you. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to wait weeks and months later to talk to Tim <laughs> to figure out what he thought of, of your story. Mm -hmm. But there's something wonderfully immediate about the classroom. So it's the workshop yes. that you're running or guiding. 
what am I doing in that in that workshop? I am both running and guiding and <laughs> holding on with my bare hands. Yeah, yes. yeah. So what do you do when you come across one of those situations where students are um, crisscrossing? You know, they're, they're not getting along about a particular line, that, of, line of criticism. That never happens in my <laughs> workshop. What are you talking about? That's just... Ha, ha, ha. Um, you know, I, I, I think that I try to tell my students, um, first of all, I believe in workshop karma, mm -hmm. right? And so, like, if you are that student where you're just, you got your, you got your knife out and you're slicing and dicing your, your peers, you know, they get you yeah. come your turn. Yeah. So, but I also think, um, you know, I think you find in workshop over time the power of persuasion, right? So it's not, it's not enough to be right about any given subject, whether that's uh, how a plot is unfolding or the name of a character. What's really most important is that you're persuasive, right? And so if I can have an opinion and I can persuade you mm -hmm. that actually you should change the end of your story, you should... Um, rethink your plot, that's, that's a successful moment. And I feel like my students, more often than not, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to be persuasive. Um, so when, when on the rare occasion um, I find students at cross purposes, I sort of try to remind them mm -hmm. how important it is to be persuasive. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I've had many creative writing classes, uh, and I, I wish I had one, one with you. Aww, <laughs> and that's so sweet. You hear that, Mateo? <laughs> <clears throat> um, so what is it about the novel as a medium that you enjoy so much? Put another way, what can a novel do that other art can't? Mm. You know, I, I think what novels do both in the writing and in the reading kind of allows me as a writer to sort of thoroughly investigate particular characters and, and certain themes that the short story form, um, just because it is a short story, uh, doesn't um, allow me to do. The other thing that I think, and I obviously I'm biased, I'm, I'm a novelist, is that for me, it most mimics life itself. Mm. And so properly done, not only do you have characters making decisions, you have characters who have to live with the consequences of said decisions, mm -hmm. and that's much like life. Um, and so you, you, and in that way, artistically for me, it feels the best way to not only learn about oneself, but also learn about uh, the given event that you're reading through. I also think, you know, it is a... I also think the novel is, is interesting because it, for me, artistically, feels like a medium that most ably reminds me of how much I have in common with people who are not where I'm from, don't look like what I look like, don't, aren't from my sort of economic background, and yet I can say confidently, like, you know, I am Charles Dickens. That, that you know, you read, you know, Bleak House and at least for me, I, you know, I learned something really real about being a black woman living in New York City. And that's kind of strange. Like, how could I have something so much in common with, um, with, with that writer? And yet, he, he marvelously, you know, it's, it's funny, when I was uh, my student's age and I read Dickens, I thought, this guy, he's just such a ham. It's just so satirical and so over the top. And then as I grew up and became an adult, 
I, I was like, this, this guy just kept it real about just like, just how intricate it is to just, you know, be an adult. Like I did, I had no idea when I was 18 that he was actually pretty accurate about, you know, I mean, that he, 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 he it's, it's funny. And so I think that for me, novels best show me that world and show me myself in that world. Uh, it makes me feel much more connected uh, to my fellow men. So would you say it's one of your goals as a novelist to create that feeling, that same feeling for other people reading your work? I would hope so, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I think that, you know, what novels do best is through specificity actually um, reveal a kind of universality about the human experience, mm -hmm. right? And that, and that no matter what it looks like, I think we all understand what it feels to be other, you know, and to walk into a room and feel alone or walk into a room and want to connect and that's not working out. And it's kind of interesting how that connection comes through, I think, hopefully, in my books, and certainly in the books that I respond to, whether they're Dickens or Philip Roth or Toni Morrison. Mm -hmm. OK, all right. Thank you. What's the most common mistake young writers make? <laughs> wow. Um, hmm. You know, I, I think that, um, hmm, sometimes I think a common mistake that happens in writing is that um, they can often approach their characters or the plots in which they write as, as a formula that has an answer and that there's a good person and a bad person and and sort of applying that kind of simplicity uh, to, to their narratives. And, but I think, you know, the more you do it, the messier it becomes. And, and, and I think very quickly students um, grow. Uh, yeah, I think, yes, I think that's, uh, that's, often, that's often a problem, yes. Okay. So I read your CV, oh. um, so I might be wrong in what I'm about to say. Okay. But I think on there it said you've been a ghostwriter? Yes. Okay. So I'm very interested in this process. Did you enjoy that process? Was it somehow liberating? What was it like? I mean, I think ghostwriting, you know, normally, and I don't know of any other kind, you ghostwrite when you're helping someone um, write their nonfiction. So on the one hand, I really like ghostwriting because it allows me to get to know people in a way that, you know, actually don't even have that kind of relationship with my students, which for me is, is the most intimate relationship I have as a writer to another person. And ghostwriting is, is more than that because you're just spending weeks and months with this one person unpacking every aspect of their lives and writing it down. So you get to, you know, it's like, it's like doing a conference on steroids. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating in that way. And you get to, for me, get to understand someone's life um, that's not at all like my own. And so, you know, you learn from that experience. On the other hand, I find ghostwriting really restrictive. Mm. Because when you write memoirs, you, I, at my heart, I'm a fiction writer. And so I can look at a scene and be like, it would be so great if she died. Let's just, <laughs> let's just kill her off, because mm, chef's kiss. And I can have someone like Brenda or someone like Marcus, like, no, 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 she didn't die. She's, she's still working. Go say hi. And I'm like, no, no, no. But let's just kill her for this for this chapter. And, and, and so in that way, I find it, I find it restrictive. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I would much rather write, write fiction. Okay, all right. Tell us a little bit about the publishing process. What advice do you have 
for getting published. Ooh. What everyone wants to know. I see. Right. Luck, luck, luck. No, um, <laughs> you know, I think what I, I hope what my students take away from my class, which I try to mimic the publishing process, you know, although I don't quite put it that way to my students, is that learning to, learning to love to revise, right? I mean, publishing is about revising and then revising and then revising and then revising. And unless you like that process, um, it's, you're, you're just going to struggle. So, you know, you write the great American novel. You love it, obviously. So does your mother. And, <laughs> and then finally... You get it to an agent, and they're like, we love it too, but, and you have to revise it. And then once it goes out into the world and it is bought by some wonderful editor, they love it too, but uh, you need to revise it. And then it goes through another revision process um, with, with copy editing. And you know. And at any time in this process, can it all just fall apart? And they're like, "No, we don't want to do it anymore." Why would you put that in the universe? Oh, I'm sorry. Don't put that in the. <laughs> don't put that in the universe. Um, wow. Don't do no, it's that. because of my own fears. Don't you're putting it in the universe. Okay. Don't don't do that. No, it won't happen. Um, no, I mean, I, can that happen? You know. Sure, anything bad could happen. We could get hit by a bus today. Yes. But, um, but, but no, you know, I, I find that by the time you're taken through your paces, everyone's sort of fully invested yeah. in, in it seeing the light of day. Yeah, okay. Um, and so, um, you know, you kind of, you, you do, you have to be open to, um, to making revisions. You also have to be persuasive uh, and an advocate for your own writing, mm -hmm. um, but but yeah. How do you how do you walk that tightrope of being an advocate for your own writing, mm -hmm. but there's this poor person across a desk who holds the keys to your book being published, and they want what they want. Right. And like how do you how do you persuade them? Well, you know, I I think it's it's my students know this. It's it's like it's like a great conference project. It really is. It's like on the one hand, you are sitting across the table from someone who's really good at whatever you're doing, whether that be philosophy or that's art history or that's dance. But you too have a certain perspective. And what you're really trying to do, you're not trying to be right, right? You're not trying to be right. You want the book to be right, right? And so I actually think more often than not, even when you find yourself in disagreement, if if we can agree we want this book to be right and we're willing to have a serious conversation about that, mm -hmm. most problems can sort themselves out because it's based, it, the foundation is that we, we both want this book to work. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not going to dismiss your, your comments. I'm gonna take them seriously while simultaneously thinking, is that true to my original intention? Mm -hmm. And if it's not, what exactly is going awry in the narrative so that my intention becomes clear and, and convinces you that's the way the book should go? All right, all right, that's, that's great. So I'm curious about your writing process. Do you have a specific time of day when you work, or and, and do you um, write for a specific duration of time each day, or is it a little more all over the place? Yeah, no, writing doesn't like all over the place. I've tried it, though. Yeah. I've tried it a lot. No, I, I'm, a, I'm a real creature of habit. I wake up at 4, 4.30. Um, I am trying to get in a couple of hours before 7. Um, and then I take my sons to school, and then I come back and I play solitaire, because you gotta you gotta get in a win. Yeah, <laughs> you, you know, you get in that win, and I'm like, mmm, solitaire, I won. Um, and then I probably, off and on, kind of jockey back and forth between 
writing and then procrastinating by cleaning and then going back to writing until like around noon, one o'clock. And then uh, you go back and, you know, depending on the project, depending on the year, I either treat myself, I'll call, I'll call Melvin, you know, I'll, 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 I'll call Peggy. And yay, you know, how are you doing? I get to talk to people. Um, or, or you go back and you sort of reread, but I, I know very few writers who can really do it for eight hours. And you know, if you get lucky and you clear a page in a day, you're on fire. And you just, <laughs> you know, yeah. A for the win. Yeah, I'm I'm all over the place right now, and it's not it's not working. <laughs> you got you got to get that habit. I think you know writing, even though it's a creative process, and obviously it's quite mindful. It's also like a, but it's like exercise. You it know? is like exercise. It's, it's like you got to stretch out. You know, you know, crack your back a little yes. bit, and you know, do your thing, and touch your toes. And by the time I I win that solitaire game, and I do win. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's, I, my whole body is like, okay, let's go right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you just gotta, I try to tell my students, especially those who are having writer's block, like think about your most successful writing day. Mm-hmm. What did that look like? Like, did you have soup? Did you talk to your mama? Did you go out and walk around the block? Then do that, mm-hmm. right? Like get, you, you know, get your entire self into like, this is what we do when we want to write. Mm-hmm. And, and it doesn't work all the time, but you'd be amazed how often it works. Right. You just mentioned writer's block. <laughs> Have you ever gotten writer's block? Uh, why or why not? Mm-hmm. And if so, how does one get through it? Mm-hmm. And, and also, I've heard some people who don't even believe writer's block is a thing. I mean... Is it a thing? It must be because everyone talks about it. So <laughs> I, I, I'll buy that for a dollar. I mean, I, I think that have I had days where I am not writing and I'm like, you really ought to be writing? Yes. Would I call that writer's block? No. I would that call that April not having a real handle on me not having a handle on my schedule mm-hmm. and, and hoping for miracles and writing and miracles don't like each other. No. Yeah, they don't. They're, they're enemies. It's just like writing and inspiration. They're frenemies. Yeah. You know, they, it's like not really. Don't wait on inspiration. She doesn't really like you. <laughs> um, and so, you know, because I find that to be true, I think it's more about sort of figuring out what you need to do in order to get yourself in the mood um, for writing. And, and that really does um, vary from person to person. For me, it's reading, right? It's like reading a certain kind of book that has a certain kind of language, like nine times out of 10, that's gonna work for me. Mm. Um, also, you know, rereading what you've written, because that's the other thing that happens, right? You, you're standing and you're sitting in front of a blank page and you're like, what am I going, oh, what is this 12, tw- page 27 going to look like? And then just think, well, what did your pages one through 26 look like? Mm-hmm. You know, like going, kind of reminding yourself of, of the journey that you've already taken can kind of jumpstart like, oh, that's right. I did have that happen on page six, I should bring that back. We're on page, we're on page 26, 27 now. Mm-hmm. And that can sort of help you, help you get going. So I wouldn't be so harsh as to say there's no writer's block. Okay. I just think, as it's been explained to me, no, I have not had that yet. Okay, good. When you're really in the flow of writing, do you feel like it's all pouring out of just you or do you feel like a vessel through which something higher is working? Huh. <laughs> Wait, say that again. Sure. Uh, when you're really in the flow of writing, uh-huh. do you feel like it's all pouring out of just you? 
Mm -hmm. Or do you feel like a vessel through which something higher is working? Wow, that second one was rather divine, right? Um, wow. Wow, that, I want that second one. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I feel like I, I, I don't know. Okay. I, yeah, I, I, I do. I feel like, you know, like when on those days where I'm on a roll yeah. and, I'm, and I have written a whole two and a half pages, uh, you know, endorphins do get released. Yes. And so, so I, I'm, I'm feeling the divine portion of those things. Um, you know, writing well does put me in a good mood. I think I, I, you know, you hear about writers, and I feel like poets do this a lot. And I'm like, that's so fascinating, that when they write, they see things. Mm. They like see clouds and, and flowers and shit. like this is great. This is amazing. Um, you know, for me, I, I, I've, I have a very, a very auditory process. Mm. You know, like I hear my sentences and. I like the sound of them. It's more akin to listening to music, like mm -hmm. like really like jamming on like your favorite album mm -hmm. where you want to get up and you're like, yeah, that's right, yeah, hit it. Um, then then something being channeled through me. Yeah. So yeah. All right. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of Beyonce going on in my head. Um. All right, I've got three more questions. Okay. Uh, so what are some great novels you think everyone should read? Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Well, th that's loaded. I I'll, I'll, just, I'll, I'll just say my favorites. Um, and they're my favorites for different reasons. So I, I really, I think actually people should read uh, William Faulkner's Light in August. For me, this is an incredible plot. Um, and, and it's beautiful writing, and it's so evocative of, and it's so dark, but so good. Um, so that's, that's one. I, I think I, I really like Don Quixote. Mm. Um, I just, like, what a big, huge story uh, that, kind of, on the one hand, is very funny, um, and parts that are obviously whimsical, but really is, it, I think for me, perfectly articulates what the place literature has in the human condition and why we're so compelled by it and shaped by it. Um, and so that's, I find that wonderful. And, and then, you know, then I have the stories that I read all the time and, kind of help me um, think about myself, think about my writing, think about the world, you know. I love Toni Morrison, um, you know, Song of Solomon, I think is wonderful. I love Philip Roth. It's, you know, it's the counter life. I'm sure he didn't mean it. Those are black people in the counter life. That is, it's, it's amazing. Um, how deftly the counter life deals with the sort of black people in the modern world, even though it's filled with a bunch of Jewish people and Israel. But it's like, but really, it's all about black people. Trust me, <laughs> trust me. Um, so I, 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 I really, um, I really love, um, love Philip Roth. Um, yeah, those would be my, okay. yeah. All right, that's a good list. Thank you. <laughs> uh, lastly, what words of encouragement could you give to those artists, whatever their age, who may be afraid to put themselves out there? When you say put themselves out there, you mean try to get published, or do you mean doing readings, or what do you mean? I'll start with just sitting down, writing something, mm and starting from there. But with, within their head, they want to eventually get an audience for this. Right. But maybe they're just 
clenched up about the idea of sharing something so personal? Right. Uh, oh, well, you know, when in doubt, tell a lie. <laughs> right. I mean, that. I mean, that's the nice thing about. I mean, this is why I don't write nonfiction, um, nor would I ever do my memoirs. I. I. I absolutely understand what it would feel to be embarrassed and quote unquote put yourself out there. Thankfully, in fiction, you get to fib through all of that, and that's that's not our problem. Um, I, but I do, I, I think the thing is about being a writer and quote unquote putting yourself out there, to put it in another way, it's like, how do you handle being judged? That's what you're asking, yes, right? Because, exactly. and we all hate that. Let's, let's just be like, on yes. it. like, I hate that. You know, when I ask you, oh, what do you think? You just say, great. Yeah. Like, don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to hear your truth about yeah. my writing. You say it's beautiful and yes. you never read anything better. Yes. Um, and so I, I think you've got to, I think, but I think once you kind of own that that's what you're looking for, mm-hmm. it, 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 it makes it okay if you don't get that, right? Because that's what we're looking for. I mean, yeah. you know, when you decide to reveal yourself in an artistic way, you're basically asking the world to affirm you. And, and the world should say back to you, because we all like it, I like you. You're great. Um, and, and that affirmation, like, no one wants to hear your nuance about it. I don't want you to, I like it, but. Yeah. Like, I like it. I want you to, I want to adopt you. That's how much I like it. <laughs> and I think once you, you realize, like, that's what I'm looking for, it's kind of okay to get something else and take that seriously. And, you know, I think, you know, readers of, of your work have three options. They can either like it or they can dislike it or they can go jump in a river. And, and you should kind of be, you know, I, I do think being artistic and quote unquote putting yourself out there does take a certain level, not exactly confidence, but a, but a kind of like another skin, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it's hard because when one is artistic in any way, necessarily it feels personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you just have to try to remind yourself it's not personal, even though it's simultaneously very personal, and and just sort of kind of be okay with that contradiction. All right. Well, thank you very much, April. No that was problem. fantastic. Thanks. If anyone has a question they'd like to ask, just take the microphone and I'll move this in a better spot. I know the chair is scary, but it's not that scary. Otherwise, we won't hear you. Uh, yeah, we need you to hold the microphone so we can record your question. You want it? Okay. Thank you. Sure, thank you. And tell us your name. My name's Mateo Dominguez. Um, my question for April is, what brought you to Sarah Lawrence in the first place when you were a student? And what made you go back to teach there? Oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. Um, actually, it was a huge mistake that... <laughs> I do mean that literally, guys. Uh, it was a huge mistake that brought me to Sarah Lawrence. Um, I, uh, I am from Dallas, and um, I had a teacher, Miss Jordan, who liked me quite a bit, and... and and like, this is what it means to fill out applications and so on and so forth. And I went to this college um, in uh, Austin College in Sherman, Texas. And I was being interviewed by, I guess, the dean there. And we're having this conversation. And we're having a great time. And, he's, and you know, I'm liking him. He's liking me. We're, we're, hey, it's great. And he says, April, seriously, tell us, what, what's our competition? Let's just put a, you're coming, right? But who are we up against? And I'm like, well, you know, I am going to apply to Trinity. And he was like, you know, can I just be, you are way too fun for Trinity. You are, you are not going to like it. Don't, don't apply there. Okay, what else you got? I'm like, well, you know, I'm going to apply to Wellesley. And he's like, you know, I just, I don't, mm -mm. 
I don't, mm -mm, I don't see it for you. And I didn't have a third college. And the thing is, is that I'm a big believer in threes. Like, say it three times. It's just got a roundness to it. And I was like, so I lied. <laughs> and I, the last little pamphlet I got before I uh, went down to Sherman, Texas, was a pamphlet from Sarah Lawrence. And I said, oh, and I'm applying to Sarah Lawrence. And he was like, oh, Sarah Lawrence? Really? Because April, you know I want you to come here, but you have got to go to Sarah Lawrence. <laughs> that is your place. The, hold on a minute. And he picks up the phone. He calls the admissions director. And he's like, I got this girl. April, no, look her, no, she's, she just applied, no, you've got to take her, but I had lied. <laughs> and so I leave, and I, and I turn to my teacher who had taken me, and I'm like, what are we going to do? And she's like, we're going to call those people, and we're going to get you this goddamn application. And they FedEx me down the application. I, I was awake for th three days, and I filled it out, and I shipped it back, um, FedExed it back, and, and two days later, they let me know I was accepted. And, and, and it was so odd and so weird that, you know, my teacher was like, I don't know where this place is. I don't know what this place, but this is destined and you better go. And that's how I got to Sarah Lawrence. Yeah, that's, that, yeah, that's, how, that's how it happened. Hi, Peggy. Hi, April. Um, I'm Peggy Gould. I teach in the dance program and I'm very fortunate to have April as a close colleague and friend. Um, I wonder if you would talk a little bit about um, your experiences studying with Ilya and oh. maybe any other faculty members who were important for you. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys know, but Ilya uh, walks taught 19th century literature. Um, you know, I, 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 and clearly he shaped my life uh, in, in, in just such an amazing way. And, you know, one of the things that my biggest takeaway from Sarah Lawrence is just how my teachers created who I am, right? And, and you know, I'm one of these very lucky people. I can sort of, all of my good fortune has an address. And, and the sort of friendships that I've forged with my teachers. David Castriota is, is my Don and, um, Love this man and was so pivotal uh, in my life. And then Ilya, and then of course Michael Davis, um, who I took philosophy with, and Malvin Bukat, who, um, you know, it's kind of the reason why I figured out um, this is the, one of the really bad things about being black and being poor in America is. Not that you're black and poor. That that part's great, but <laughs> but it's it's the kind of it's the level of not knowing. You you don't know anything. You, you know, and and it's not like you don't even have the questions to find out what to know. And you're just kind of you know you're in this. And I, you know, one of the things that I think my teachers helped me figure out. Um, Fred Smoller, um, we had a party at his place and I was getting ready to graduate and I, I was one of those students, I did not want to graduate. This was, this was the life and I had tons of friends and, and it was beautiful and what, why would you leave this place? I, I don't know. Um, and I was very sad and he was like, don't be sad, you know, I'm going to stay your friend, we're going to be friends for life and I'm like, no, you don't understand, you know, I'm, I, I've, I, I still need to learn so many things, I have so many questions, and he's like, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I, I got you, and I started to cry, and I was like, 
but I don't know what the questions are. And I feel like my, my teachers um, are very good at sort of instigate, instigating questions for me and having conversations where it's, I can still ask dumb things and, and, and get really heartfelt, multi-paged answers. And I end up growing as, as a human being. And so, and Ilya was one of those people for me. And he sort of introduced me to whether that was, you know, Dostoevsky or whether that was, um, you know, Mark Twain or Faulkner or, or Dickens uh, or Jane Austen, just sort of, he's very good at making me realize like how much I had in common with this entire world. Um, you know, the liberal arts really is, whether that's philosophy or dance or writing or literature or philosophy, it, it really is like, that is my world. Um, and so just being able to realize I had a place in it, I think Ilya taught me, taught me that. Uh, hi, my name's Nate. Um, you're the April Mausolino, you could have been like a rock star or pretty much anything you wanted. Why did you write? And at what point did just writing become I'm a writer? Oh yeah, I actually remember that. I was 23. Like, wow, what a blast from the past. Um, thank you, Nate, for thinking I could be anything. That is not true. Um, but you know, you know, it's, it's funny. It actually took me talking to Melvin to realize that I could write. Because writing is something fun, right? And you talk to your friends, and you have a good time. And everyone knows no one makes a living doing that kind of thing. Right? You know, you're not supposed to have a good time and great conversations. And I mean, work is sucking, right? I mean, that's what work is. And so uh, it just didn't dawn on me that I could write for a living. Or just the entire, I just grew up in a place where working means like, you know, my mother was a maid and my dad was the guy before you get to the butcher. He worked in a slaughterhouse. That's working. Right, you, you, you know, my dad telling me stories growing up as a kid is a sense of joy, but it never occurred to anyone that you, that you would actually write that down and someone would give you a dollar for it. Like, that's kind of incredible. Uh, and I remember graduating and Melvin taking me out for drinks and him saying, you know, you could really do this for a living. And I'm like, do what for a living? And he was like, you know, right. You could do that for a living. Uh, and I was like, uh-huh. Yeah, I have a job now, and I am making $21,000 a year. So, mm-mm-mm, I don't think so, buddy. So it actually, like, it, it took me a long time to say I'm a writer because that's, that's fun, nice stuff. And I was a production assistant at Forbes magazine, and my father was very impressed, as was I. Um, and, and I remember when I kind of like selling my first book, realizing I had to take time off in order to edit it. And so when people asked me what I did for a living, I couldn't be like nothing. No. So, so I, I was like, I'm a writer. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's when I, yeah. Hi. Hi, Maya. <laughs> um, I guess my question would be, like, did you ever deal with insecurities as a young writer? Um, like, feeling if you're not good enough, and, like, how did you navigate through those? Yeah, I'm going to give a really annoying answer <laughs> to that. No. I, but, fair, but, fair. But, 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 but in part because I am not, I was not nearly as nearly sophisticated as my students are. Now, you know, one of the reasons why, 
like if you don't know what's really going on, what is there to be anxious about? <laughs> you, it, like, you know, you guys know so much more uh, than I do when I was your age. I mean, you know, I wanted to be a writer. I was like, okay. You know, there was the internet, but I wasn't on it, you know? I mean, I remember when I got a job, it was dial-up. You, would you really burn that much time looking up what it meant to be a writer? So I, I, I think that I didn't, yeah. I, you know, I've never thought of writing or actually any art as a zero-sum game, right? That if I get in, that means you can't get in, which means, you know, sucks to be you. I feel like... Each of us, our stories are so different and how we approach the creative process and what we're ultimately trying to take away from it. There's room enough for everybody, you know? So I, I didn't, you know, that isn't, that isn't to say, like, the more you know about the world, the more anxious you become. So I grew into it. I, I did. My 30s were a real rocky road. But... Um, but but at you know at your age no I I I had you know I it probably helped that I had no intention of becoming a writer um, so I just didn't yeah ignorance is 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 bliss this is a cliche that is true so um, and I also think you know I don't know ultimately at the end of the day being anxious about what some Sally Sue was doing down the road and or said on his or her Instagram. Like, do you believe it? Really? I, and so I, I just find it kind of be, to be ultimately non-productive. So why, so why dabble? So I, 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 I don't. This is why I'm on no social media. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, as soon as you get off of it, you feel your confidence levels just rising through the roof. I just want to just please let's give a round of applause for April Mussolino. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. This is a what a rousing and wonderful final installment for the faculty you know, for the faculty uh, spotlight. And we can't wait to read your novel when it comes out, and we would love to have you back. I, I'm, I love learning about new faculty, and this is a special one for me. So thank you so much for coming here. Thank you for having me. Thus concludes this episode of the Sarah Lawrence Library Podcast. Thank you again to April and her students who joined in the Q&A. I can't tell you how good it feels that this is the last episode of the season. It's going on on a real high note, and that just gives me a lot of pleasure. On that note, we will return the first week classes start in the spring semester, which means we'll have a new episode for you January 26th, if all goes according to plan. If you'd like more from the SLC Library podcast, then go back and listen to one of my other chats with staff, students, or faculty to tide you over until the next episode. Remember to give the podcast a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media at SLC Library on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And visit the library website where you can check your library account, reserve a study room, or book a consultation with one of our research librarians at sarahlawrence.edu slash library. The Sarah Lawrence Student Life Preservation Project is accepting contributions. Visit slcstudentlifeproject.omica.net for more information. That URL will be in the show notes. If you have any questions, concerns, or suggestions, email me at fkale at sarahlawrence.edu. Oh, and special thanks to Ruby Arthur, who did the music for this episode and the past couple episodes. I just absolutely love this music. It like brings me back to college and what it was like being a young kid listening to Elliot Smith and being all angsty and in my emotions. <laughs> it just brings me back there so much. So thank you, Ruby. Uh, I look forward to your, you and your, your work, your art, uh, being a contribution to the podcast going forward into the future. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. And yeah, that about does it. It's been a great season, everyone. I really appreciate 
those of you who've downloaded and played these episodes. I hope it's enriching your life in some way. Reach out to me to let me know how it is, if it is. Uh, you, you know, email me, fkale at sarahlawrence.edu is my very public email, uh, so go ahead and email me there. And uh, just thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I, I can't thank you enough. All right, I look forward to doing this again next semester. But until then, have yourself a very happy, restful vacation. Thank you.